0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode one of the Personalization Outbreak. Now, I'm really excited to launch this new project, particularly in the midst of a crisis like this, where we're seeing how fragile our systems really are, and more and more the need to have leaders who can act and people can trust each other. On this first episode, we'll be talking about the responsibility leaders have in communicating with transparency why it's important to be authentic, and the challenges that come with that in virtual communication in times of crises. Now, to help us get there, I'm inviting my dear friend and one of my mentors, Dr. Nick Morgan. See, Nick specializes in storytelling. In fact, he's the founder of Public Words, a nationally recognized communications firm, and is the author of several books, one in particular called Can You Hear Me? How to Connect People, in a virtual world. Now, of course, to take this corporate rhetoric to a whole other level of analysis, exploring the humanity and its necessary evolution in today's age of personalization, we have our co-host and my friend, anthropologist, Dr. Scott Lacey. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak. A podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. You now, Nick loves, as you'll hear, Uh, He loves to help people tell their stories in ways that captures the attention of the world. And I must say that uh, I'm proud that 14 years ago when I started my journey as an author and leadership influencer, uh, Nick taught me timeless treasures that have played a critical role in my success uh, today. And um, I will forever be grateful. So, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Glenn, it's a great pleasure, and Scott, good to see you again, too.
0: Great to see you. Now, I don't want to forget that Nick uh, is also the author of the best-selling book from uh, the the Washington Post bestseller, Can You Hear Me?, where he explains what works and doesn't work in today's virtual communications and uh, talk about timeliness, Uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. You know, uh, Nick, in my recent Forbes article, Uh, six leadership principles uh, to guide us during crisis, I write the following, and I'd like for you to to react to it. The magnitude of how personal this COVID-19 crisis is awakened us all, more than ever, to the realization of what leadership is not. That it's not about power, but rather the privilege of allowing one's influence To better serve others, that it's not about responsibility alone, but rather taking ownership of a mission that goes well beyond one's assigned duties. That leadership is not about hierarchy or rank, but rather how one shows their human side in authentic ways to encourage others to do the same. Now, I know this may sound a little soft, but isn't it true? that the reality is that people work harder and will trust people more if leaders treat them with this sense of humanity humanity. and the sense of individualism. So why do you think it's important that leaders share with us what they're really thinking or feeling?
1: Well, it's it's fascinating that you asked that, uh, Glenn. Because just this morning, over coffee, I was thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and, <laughs> and uh, your your viewers and listeners will will recall that uh, Maslow had a had a hierarchy that goes from physiology and safety all the way up to self actualization, and and his goal was to get everybody to the top of that uh, that hierarchy and in the happy place of working on things that you really loved and that and that brought fulfillment to your spirit what happens in times of crisis is we work our way down that hierarchy and we we get to issues of safety and and food and shelter frankly and wellness and illness and in those times if our leaders aren't being authentic with us then the first thing that happens is our ability to listen to them and and to to draw any kind of support from them goes immediately out the window. Uh, and, and so a time like this, uh, sadly, of course, is, is a, a, a huge test of leadership in that very simple and very profound sense.
0: So what is the mindset of a leader in a moment of crisis? I mean, clearly there's some level of disorientation, and Scott talks a lot about that, and I'd like you to jump in, Scott, Uh, Once Nick answers his question, but where do you think the mindset is now, especially when you consider how much massive change that's been thrown upon them all at once?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first the first uh, few moments are just of disorientation. And 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 I've talked to a number of people who said that first week when the coronavirus fully hit, I just sat around and, and watched my news feeds and, and I couldn't focus on anything. I, 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 couldn't, uh, I couldn't get any real work done. And, and gradually over time you begin to get grips on it and, and you, start to, you start to focus, uh, be able to focus a little bit anyway, and that's the point at which leadership becomes critical because a leader has to remind us what our purpose is in the organization and what's the important thing to focus on. And even when other things are taken away, such as being able to meet face-to-face, um, then what can we get done in the virtual sphere? What can we, uh, what can we do anyway? And, and then what can we do most importantly? Uh, I was talking to an organization that's gone from making uh, first aid kits um, to ventilators. And, and so... In my mind, that's a leader uh, or leaders who knew exactly what their purpose was and were able to reorient it at a time of crisis to a beautiful and, and, and truly important, uh, life-saving, literally life-saving uh, uh, purpose. So um, that's the kind of thing we look for. Then keep, keep yourself focused on what's important and, and, and what your purpose is and then be able to share that.
0: How do you react to that, Scott?
2: I, I find it fascinating, uh, largely because of the seeming incongruity of the statement and that is in disorientation and a disorientation moment, the job of the leader is orientation, right? And at first it sounds a little bit too straightforward, but in fact, um, I think that that deserves a deeper dive. Um, so. What is an orientation? How, what is orientation in a space of utter chaos and confusion and where all standards have been left to the side and not by choice? Hmm. Where would you go, Nick, uh, in terms of in helping out a leader that's looking to figure out how to orient the disoriented in a place where the leader, he or herself, is also very disoriented?
1: Yeah, ultimately... Uh... I love that question, uh, Scott. Ultimately, you have to go back to some kind of first principles uh, and decide uh, really what what matters to you. And that sounds simple, uh, but of course, it's not. Uh, and the the danger is as you work your way down Maslow's hierarchy th- that you lose things which you thought were important and dear to you because they're further up on the on the list and suddenly don't seem so important anymore. Um, uh, one of the things I've noted with friends of mine who have a lot of enforced idleness is that they tell me they're reading a lot more now, and and I say that's great. I'm I'm an author, so I love when people read. <laughs> um, and they say, but the only thing that can capture my attention are are, are zombie novels or or uh, uh, books about the apocalypse or something like that, and, and so uh, my heart sinks a little at that. But I fully understand. It, it, that's where we are, uh, and and when you're distracted by uh, news which seems surrealistic or apocalyptic or unbelievable, then the only thing that can get your attention back is, is uh, something at the same level.
2: Now, be- be- before I let go of that, Glenn, and, and ask you to, 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 to move us forward a little bit, um, one of the things that I love teaching, one of the, the things I love teaching about anthropology to undergraduates is um, a session that we do every semester where We spend the whole time looking forward or looking back to how we are how we've become what we've become in terms of our evolution cultural biological but the capstone unit uh for that discussion is literally apocalyptic anthropology how about the end and Mm -hmm. let's look forward and what about the end of humanity and it freaks students out quite a bit but they find themselves very comfortable because they certainly figure out that they're doing this apocalyptic anthropology already by loving the the Walking Dead and by loving these zombie movies and these <laughs> apocalyptic scenarios and, and the pop culture of it all, and the one thing I would just like to add from an anthropological point of view is we 've been doing this forever as humans we've been imagining our demise from the beginning, and there's such a rich and strangely beautiful um, literature or, or history of how humans have imagined the end of our race, the end of our being and one thing The ironic thing about this is the more we study these apocalyptic scenarios, as well as the collapse of civilizations prior to us, um, the more we find that these apocalyptic scenarios and running them through our mind and playing with them in a creative way, even about zombies in a time of coronavirus, um, it's absolutely a creative way for us to safely discuss complete disorientation, right? Uh, We don't really fear that there will be zombies tomorrow on the streets, but I can talk about zombies in a safe way that I can't talk about coronavirus because, A, I can make stuff up about zombies, and it's cool. I'm not supposed to do that with coronavirus. So I would just like to point out that this apocalyptic anthropology, thinking about how the the species might end, is actually one of the things that's kept us alive. And I think that's another reason why I feel that our – current situation or our viewpoint on, on, on what's happening with COVID um, is definitely tainted in terms of sheer terror and fear, but uh, we have to look back at our history and recognize that by working through this, we're actually embold- in, emboldening our species.
1: I I'd, I'd love that, and I'd love to take it back to leadership because I think the other responsibility of leadership... Uh, at a time like this, is to have already thought about the death of the organization, the death of what it means uh, to uh, have the purpose that we say we had. Because if you don't know the end, um, then you don't know the arc, the shape of what you're doing. Yeah. And, and ultimately, that's also a, a leadership uh, responsibility, it seems to me, is to give your organization, to give the, uh, the people who work in it, a sense of what's the shape of this organization under what terms and what conditions could it die and it would would it be appropriate for it to, it to die and, and if you don't know that you haven't really thought about what your mission or your purpose is so uh, so i say bring on the zombies um, and then step back from the zombies and say how does that apply to uh, uh, to our own organization and what we're doing right now well
0: i think we could all agree that uh, at least i would hope that we can open our minds to understand <laughs> that standardization uh, has died. And not in the literal sense, in that you know, the old ways of doing things, uh, we can't lean on those things anymore. And uh, the biggest concern I have, uh, Nick and, and Scott, is that we're going to try to find ways to spin uh, things with new flowery language that makes us feel that we're here to serve the individual when what we're really doing is trying to hold on to the the standards of the past. From a communications perspective, uh, Nick, uh, how do we avoid that from happening? You know, we're at a time now where uh, everyone's true vulnerability is being put on full display. And uh, I think it's fair to say that many leaders at this time, they just don't have all the answers. And I think the best answer that they can provide is authenticity, the truth. Uh, So Uh, how do we make sure that we avoid ourselves from trying to uh, bring back uh, the dead, the old ways of doing things Mm. at a time where we need to truly embrace greater levels of inventiveness in appreciation of one's unique needs as an individual?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's really an important issue because, uh, uh, my inbox, like I'm sure many others, has been filled in the last few weeks with messages from every organization that I ever, in a moment of weakness, gave my email address to. Um, and they're all say exactly the same message, which is, we are here for you during this time. And and my favorite one came from the bank, uh, which then sent a follow-up email, which said, um, we're raising our short-term uh, uh, borrowing rates because uh, we're experiencing so much financial difficulty. And I thought, wait a minute, we're here for you in this time. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but shouldn't you be lowering those rates if you were here for me in this time? So uh, um, it's the, the hypocrisy of exactly what you're talking about, Glenn, that, that, general, that, uh, that age of, of uh, standardization leads to communications like that. Uh, But if you're talking from a place of real authenticity, then that message is going to look very different. And it it comes from uh, my home to your home and and my experience uh, in isolation and in lockdown to your experience in isolation and lockdown. And it just has a completely different flavor. And it may not be able to offer anything specific right now. Uh, Aside from just that sense of that we are all human and we're all uh, in this together, I mean, the most beautiful message I got from s- some person like that uh, was just a very simple one. What do we need to do now? We need to be kind. We need to stay calm, and we need to help the people around us. And I thought that was simply the most beautiful message out of all those corporate messages that I received.
0: You know, but but let's go back to uh, corporate messaging, uh, Nick. Um, and I I know that this may rub people the wrong way, but I, I certainly hope that we're not exploiting this opportunity either. In other words, uh, I know it's, it seems to be a time for organizations and leaders to win over people's hearts, but we can't forget about their heads. I mean, mm. th- th- we have been, we've been going through crisis well before corona, uh, COVID-19 started. And, and so it's just accelerated it. And, and so how do, how, what would you say to a, to a brand that is trying to find their footing again, uh, knowing that that message around the individual is one that they just can't let go of anymore because the moment they retract back, it, it seems to me that the, the likelihood of getting exposed in elevating their risk profile will be higher than ever given such Sensitivity now to serving an individual's needs. What's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it's the the issue of of brand goes back to uh, what we were talking about a moment ago, which is uh, what is the original purpose of your brand and what is the the real meaning of your brand, and uh, you need to go back to that. Uh, The the, I've been asking people uh, just one question uh, when I've been talking to them, which is what in your background, what in your Experience. What in your area of expertise has prepared you to deal with this unprecedented crisis? I mean, uh, you and I, Glenn, are both old enough, and I imagine Scott is too, to have been through a couple of crises: the two thousand eight, two thousand nine, the nine eleven, maybe ones even before that 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 are similar. But this feels unprecedented and larger and and. Or, uh, frightening in many ways so uh, what has prepared you to deal with that is my question and I got a beautiful answer from an old friend of mine if I could give a shout out to him just for a mm-hmm. second fellow named David Meerman Scott who's a wonderful marketer uh, and expert in in uh, uh, social media marketing as well as other kinds um, and he, he said the Grateful Dead and that got my attention <laughs> and I said what about the Grateful Dead and and he said um, the Grateful Dead gave away their music for free, unlike every other musical band at the time who restricted the recording rights and, and prevented people from doing bootleg recordings and things like that. The Grateful Dead said, ah, come on in, bring your tape recorders, bring what you got, record the music, give it away for free. Um, and as a result, they spread their message far and wide. That was uh, completely authentic to who they were. Mm-hmm. And And his takeaway was at this time, uh, brands need to remember what it is that they do um, for free. If and then they're going to go on to figure out things they can charge for. But uh, but first of all, what is what is the uh, the basic underlying premise of what they do that they can offer the world in a way that is just uh, uh, coming from a space of of uh, bravery and love and courage at this point because we need a lot of that in the world. Thank you, Nick right
0: Scott. You want to elaborate on on Nick's thinking?
2: Well, he's blown me away with the Grateful Dead reference. I didn't think we'd get there, and I'm so happy we're there. Um, But I think from the business sense, it's true. I mean, they gave it away, but some of the richest musicians that are alive to this day are from that band, and they still sell out shows nine or ten in a row, right? Exactly. Um, And they're still giving it away for free. And so that is something to – that's a great example. Um, And even the lyrics uh, that we would have – You know, we lost Robert Hunter about a year ago, but – was uh, one of the major lyricists, but bottom line, the lyrics of that band as well. Um, I didn't never thought of that till you mentioned that. Nick, but um, their lyrics have a lot to say about kind of getting back to that basic uh, sort of human level that you're speaking to this whole time about authenticity with leadership. Um, and so, so really, that's that's where I am right now. He's you got my mind blurring through all these different lyrics and such. So I'm going to turn it back to you, Glenn.
0: <laughs> let, let, let's focus on your book. Uh, can you he, can you hear me now? Mm. Or can you hear me? <laughs>
1: can you yes? Sorry, can, can you hear me? me? Yeah, I
0: can't be that other one. That's that somebody else has got that.
1: That's a that's an advertising campaign from somebody we won't that, mention now. My, yes, please my, go ahead. Know.
0: Can you hear me? A, a Washington Post bestseller. Mm. Now you say that we're all unwitting participants in a massive unregulated social experiment that's now less lasted. I think nearly a decade. Uh, that we live half face to face in half virtual world. How's it working and how is it maybe accelerated now because of this crisis?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, when I wrote that book uh, two years ago, uh, uh, people didn't want to hear about it because it was the fish uh, the swimming in the water that, that, it's the water that they uh, that they lived in, and so it was hard to think about that I was asking the question uh, so you, you most of your day is spent with text based communication email uh, literally text messages uh, and slack or whatever else you're using in the way of office productivity tools. The next level up is audio conferences um, and, and and a lot of workers spend a lot of time on a weekly audio conference with their team that kind of thing and at the very top was video conferencing uh, and all At the time, only 5% of organizations use video conferencing, um, which was an extraordinary stat to discover. I assumed it was much wider because uh, being a technophile, I'd use video conferencing a fair amount already. Um, But I looked at that hierarchy and I realized that, uh, first of all, it's completely the wrong. It should be inverted. Um, We humans don't do text-based communication well. Uh, And the reason is that it doesn't provide the cues, the clues to human intent, which is what we humans care about much, much more than we do the specific words that you use. And my favorite example this, very simple is I I ask people, have you ever sent the email, good job, great job, nice job, with or without an exclamation? Hmm. Everybody in an organization has sent that email to their underlings, if they have them, or to their colleagues. And I say, would it shock you to learn that 60% of the time that email is taken as sarcastic? Hmm. And when I used to speak face-to-face to people in the before coronavirus time, I'd literally get an audible gasp from people. They were so surprised. And their first response, once I dug a little deeper, was always, well, how could the other person be so stupid? And I said, understandable, but wrong question. The real question you should be asking is, why didn't I make my intent clear? What went wrong in that communication? Hmm. And the answer is, at a text-based level, when you say, great job, I have no idea whether you're saying that with a smile or a sneer or a frown or a nice touch on the arm. I can't tell. And it's not that there's anything wrong with my receptivity. It's just I don't know. And when we humans don't know what the context is, what you're in, what the other person's intent is, we make it up and we have a negativity bias when we make things like that up. And so, um, all virtual relationships degrade over time, unless they're nurtured in a way that we need to learn. And that's really what the book was about is how to put that kind of, um, clue of human intent back into the, uh, uh, communication you which know, is which is stripped out
0: i 'm sorry, Nick it's interesting because oftentimes i uh, in doing things virtually or or if it's not through audio i 'm just talking to them through zoom as an example, uh, oftentimes I feel this pause and i'm wondering are they reacting positively or negatively to what i'm saying, and I think that this lies back to uh, the the challenges that you've posed in the book uh, about um that 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 not only have you posed, but you've also uh, provided some solutions towards, and one of them was lack of feedback. Uh, why is it that that becomes such a challenge for us in today's virtualized world?
1: yeah, so it, again it's if you think of that hierarchy, you essentially get zero feedback at text based uh, level of communication in the thing that you care about, which is human intent and at audio conference level, you get more feedback because you can ask questions uh, and you get hear the sound of the human voice but there's there's a funny little thing about audio conferences um, and and all uh, audio based communication that's virtual is that uh, engineers long ago decided to compress that signal uh, to just a, a narrow range uh, and i 'm not going to geek out here, but it 's around fifty to three hundred and fifty hertz okay end of geeking out um, so uh, uh, the, the issue with that is human emotion is carried not in that narrow band of the pitch at which people speak, but in the undertones and overtones of their voice. And that's what makes our voices unique. That's how we tell them apart. And that's where the emotion is conveyed. So you condense that or compress that signal. And what happens is we can't get the emotion through even an audio conference. Even when we think we're hearing it, it's not always accurate. It's a little bit muted. We can't quite tell. How strongly does that person feel about this? Are they just being equivocal or are they really uh, cross with me or do they really, uh, are they really unhappy with this? And so uh, right away in virtual communication, um, even when you're doing with audio conferences, it gets, it gets worse. It's harder to do. We, we misunderstand those cues of intent. Which again, remember, that's what we care about the most.
0: Well, I I must admit, in this video interview, your cues of intent are crystal clear. It's incredible to me, not just how clear your voice is, but the way that you're communicating, the ebbs and flows of your intonations make me feel as if you're extraordinarily engaged. Is that what you're perhaps suggesting how we change the way that we communicate? Because in the age of standardization, It seems to me that that those more authentic, real, those things that you feel are not acceptable. Do we need to invite those human feelings back into how we communicate?
1: No, we absolutely do. I say the one key question, unfortunately, there isn't one simple solution for all the technological issues with with, uh, communication and intent, but there is one question which you can ask yourself. How did what I just say make you feel? And if you don't know the answer to that question, then you should ask it out loud. And that has two nice results. One, you might actually find out how the other person feels, and that would be a good thing. And the second is you afford that other person the respect and the vulnerability on your part to show that you care enough to ask. Uh, And and I think we need to do a lot more of slowing down and asking that question as we're communicating virtually now far more. Uh, And I don't know what the Zoom stats are yet, I haven't heard, but I'm sure it's way up from 5% of... Corporations to somewhere in the 80s or the 90s as everybody tries to learn how to do this. And by the way, at the top, video conferencing better, but it still has its issues. It's still not perfect. It's not the same thing as communicating face-to-face. And that's another thing we could geek out on if we had all the time in the world. But the, the main thing to remember is how did what I just say make you feel? That's the question we need to ask each other.
0: So how, wh- why is it that we have this second challenge you pose in the book, with with virtual communication, the ability to show empathy, this lack of empathy.
1: Yeah, that's a real puzzle. Uh, It was to me as I did the research. You might think, maybe just because I'm inherently an optimist, that if I'm not getting the feedback, if I'm not getting the clues about how the other person is feeling, that I would work harder to find out. But instead what we do, uh, the brain automatically responds when you don't fill it up with the sensory information from the standard five channels that we all know so well, sight, sound, smell, taste, et cetera. What we do is we make up information and that information has a negative bias uh, and Scott can weigh in here, but my understanding of us humans is that we are an anxious species because the folks who wandered through the jungle and thought every shadow was a saber tooth tiger those are the ones who survived, the ones who were kind of laid back and, hey, dude, that's probably not a saber-toothed tiger. That's just a shadow. Those are the ones that got eaten. So they didn't survive. <laughs> this is armchair, uh, armchair evolutionary theory, uh, Scott. So apologies, because uh, I know I'm not meeting your level of sophistication here. But, <laughs> but the basic idea is that uh, when those channels are empty, we fill them with, uh, we fill them with negative information uh, and with memories of times when things went badly because that's the best survival uh, technique so it's just our humans our brains trying to keep us alive in that situation but the result is Um, it easily goes negative. And as you mentioned, you're on an audio conference, you make a point, there's this silence while everybody lunges for the mute button because they're trying to get back into the conversation. What what do you assume? You assume something you said offended people or something went wrong or they don't understand it or it's not clear or they don't like it, on and on and on. You rarely go, wow, that must have been so good. They're stunned into happy silence. Nobody ever says that. Or my favorite other example is uh, uh, the the email, um, we've got to talk when you get that email who ever ever believed that that meant i've got great news for you we've got to talk and share that great news uh uh-uh. uh we immediately assume it's negative why is that the negative unless it's bias. followed by an emoji right which is uh, exactly what i which, uh, recommend. which is what
2: i was thinking about nick in terms of you're talking about with intent and and the limitations of text uh text i i guess text-oriented communication, and that is, you know, the the lack of of interpersonal uh, visualization, let alone Mm -hmm. body language. Um, And when we think about sort of the long trek of our neurology, one of the things that you're mentioning that is spot on, it was an armchair, and that is we are hardwired to not be uh, in this moment. (laughs) We're hardwired to be in many moments ago uh, before there were screens like the ones we're looking at right now. And so I think you're spot on with this idea that we're Our neurology is trying to catch up with our technology and um, oddly enough it was our neurology that created the technology but as as our sci-fi worlds tell us um, we're kind of losing traction on what is technology and what is human and is are they both the same in one and so I I love every time you you were talking about this I just kept thinking about the rise of emojis and how we're moving back to hieroglyphics and I can't figure out if that's better or worse because with at least with emojis the uncertainty is a little bit more on the front page, but but bottom line, I I, I really enjoy uh, your perspective on this. And in terms of language itself, I just want to throw one more thing, and that is if we are honest about maybe even neurologically similar humans like us, let's go back to at least the first toolmakers a couple million years ago. Some say it's even more than that. But we really haven't had a lot of times a time to practice our words and our communication with words. We've had a lot more time, millions of years of time, to communicate through grunts and primate calls and through pointing and stuff like that. And so this word thing for us is fairly recent and it's pretty much as recent as texting itself. And maybe in moments of this crisis, I'm curious what you think. Um, is one strategy or is, it worth, is, this, is this strategy worth thinking about? Um, do we try to go back to a pre-word communication do we try to think about how can we relate and connect to people without the words to kind of reestablish our base in terms of our base humanity with connectivity and then use our words more to help support that base humanity as opposed to pioneer a new one i'm just curious what do you think
1: i i actually love that perspective because uh, i'm a big fan of emojis and 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 so I say that is a way of crudely and simply putting back in some of those face-to-face expressions that, that get stripped out. Uh, and, and so, yes, the, the clearest human communications uh, exactly are pointing um, and, and, and as well as smiling and nodding those kind of uh, in, intent-based uh, forms of communication where I'm trying to share how I feel about something uh, to you. Uh, and so I think absolutely we should um, at least buttress our words or under underlie our words with those very simple uh, forms of communication. I think that's an excellent idea. And the, also we should strip it down to its its simplest form. This is not a time to get too clever um, or to or or to reach uh, too far for complicated uh, communications uh, and and I have a whole set of recommendations to what to do specifically in email and those kind of text based things. We don't need to get into that, but the uh, the basic idea is you've got to be clear what you're asking for uh, and you've got to make very clear uh, why you're asking for it, and you shouldn't try to do anything more than that uh, really in uh, in these kind of forms and always go for a higher level on the on the communications hierarchy so try to get on the audio conference rather than do the text-based communication and then try to get on the uh, video conference rather than doing the audio conference because each one of these is better Uh, but none of them compares to -to face-to-face so uh, uh, we can all look forward to that time when we get a chance to to get back together face to face. Did I answer your question? I felt like I sort of wandered away from it, uh, uh, Scott. So bring me back, uh, but, and that's no, you, entirely your fault because you asked such interesting questions.
2: <laughs> you answered the question, I'm gonna turn it <laughs> back to Glenn, but I'll tell you, my students, when we switched from in class to, uh, to online, one of the things that they essentially came back at me for was I was thinking I was freeing them from the screen to be themselves so they don't have to show themselves or their you know their kid brother playing around in the background or right. show their home that they might be sort of uh, nervous about showing theirs versus others and so I was trying to be inclusive by not using the video and they freaked out they're like can you please just show your face we just want to see you we want to see each other and yeah. afterwards I talked to them about it and they're like just the class itself wasn't the important thing the important thing was us coming together seeing each other responding in real time talking about stuff that was related to our class, but it really, for them, they said that the value they got out of mismoving moving online with video mm-hmm. was specifically just to see and be with other people.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I I suggest Glenn sorry can I ju- I know uh, it's back to you but I just wanted to add one thing to that that you reminded me of that I meant to say the the one of the things I highly recommend at the beginning of those kind of uh, connections that you're talking about is to take a quick temperature check um, and and this doesn't get quite to uh evolutionary times but uh, because it involves a stoplight but uh, ask ask the people on the everybody to report in green yellow or or red. Um, and the reason for that is that's very easy to say. Um, it's hard to say, I'm having a terrible day because something has gone terribly wrong with my spouse at the beginning of a conversation. That's a difficult thing to do. Or my kid is sick or I'm terribly worried about. Then those kind of things are difficult to bring up. But if you say green light, that means everything's good and I'm good to chat on this call. If you say yellow, it means I'm under a little stressed, but I'm okay, I'm basically able to be present. And then if you say red light, then that should be an alarm signal to everybody that something's uh, seriously up and and a signal to connect offline or connect in another way to that person and find out what's going on. Uh, But those kind of safe coded forms of communication are very helpful to wrap around the ways that we're communicating now Mm -hmm. at the beginning of a a, a video conference, that sort of thing.
0: Well, so Nick, uh, we're, we're coming close to the end of time, but I, I thought that it was important to address the third challenge, and, and just so everyone knows, you have five of them, and please feel free to go into the, to the, to the final two after I ask you to go deep into this next one that I think is very important uh, at this time, and that is how do we establish control of our own persona in terms of how we want others to see us? I mean, let's face it, at a time of crisis like this, uh, we're revealing our highest levels of uncertainty and vulnerability and fear. And we're being asked to do these video conferences or uh, being on these conference calls or just even how we're we're reacting and responding in the virtual world of social media. How does someone uh, regain control of their persona? Or is it just okay for people uh, to let all their fears and vulnerabilities uh, uh, why is it okay for just for them to just be out there? I mean, give us a sense of what's important right now, especially yeah, the, as, as people want you know it's interesting and I'm sorry Nick, as yeah. people, especially at a time where people want to be perceived as relevant or essential. Um, I know I'm throwing a lot into the mix here, but comments, thoughts.
1: Yeah. So the uh, the issue is the issue of control in the virtual world is, is is a really complicated one because you don't have control ultimately. And the issue is we humans, by nature, are although I'm sure all of all of your viewers know at least one person who can hold a grudge forever. But most of us are forgive and forget kinds of people. We don't retain um, the mistakes our friends make. We tolerate their bad days and. and and uh, we mm-hmm. celebrate their good days, uh, we're, we're uneven. We humans by nature are inconsistent. Uh, mm-hmm. And But the problem with the virtual world is it's not, it's consistent, machines never forget. So the dumb things you do and say, the stupid pictures you put up in moments of, of hysteria or crisis, those are gonna be there for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked with, a, to, to bring it back to the business world just for a second, about a year ago, I worked with a CEO of, of a startup company uh, that was, um, th- in an industry that desperately needs to be transformed. That's all I can say about it. And he was incredibly passionate about transforming it. So I was on his side. Um, But as a result, uh, he was very, very hard on his employees. And he would frequently burst into bouts of rage and screaming and he would occasionally fire a division over the weekend and and say you didn't measure up. And and, uh, and so as a result, there's this uh, website I'm sure most of your viewers know about called Glassdoor, where you can go on and dish about your employers. And people rarely, they can also say good things. Unfortunately, they mostly say bad things, but, but there are good organizations where lots of good things are said. Um, and when I came into work with him, uh, he had just fired a whole division um, and they had all gone onto Glassdoor and said terrible things about him. And so his first question to me was, so Nick, how do we get this stuff off Glassdoor? and my my react, I just laughed at him uh, as scott is is doing now and 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 I said it doesn't work like that, and he wasn't happy with that answer um <laughs> uh, and and I had to explain how it goes in the virtual world that machines never forget and I said, there is a way you can do this, and that is by putting out a conscious positive persona that will gradually overwhelm the negative stuff. And that's going to take time and that's going to take work, but you can do that. He really didn't like that answer, uh, but, but he understood it. Uh, And that's, that's all of our jobs is to think consciously uh, because we are now not just face-to-face people and we still can tend to continue to, 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 uh, communicated as if that were the case. And so I may throw an offhand comment when I'm talking to you face-to-face, Glenn, uh, when we're meeting out there in lovely California, which I look forward to doing again one day. Uh, and you'll forgive me in that moment because you know the guy's a little jet lag. maybe uh, he's had a glass of wine, it's okay. Nick, I, you're still Nick. But online, I simply can't do that. The, the, uh, the, the substitute for the kind of trust that people develop face-to-face online is a really scary alternative, and that is consistency. And the issue is that as soon as you're inconsistent online, people use that as an excuse not to trust you. Well, guess what, All, we humans are inconsistent. That's just what we are. And so it's very difficult for us to do that. But we, unfortunately, online, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard of consistency. So we need to think about that, even in times of crisis, and especially in times of crisis, because we're being tested in a way that we never were when we were communicating face-to-face.
0: So is it, can I conclude, based upon what you just said, that in a virtual world, we're losing
1: trust? Uh, trust is uh, eroding, yes constantly. Uh, trust can also be rebuilt by acts of generosity and acts of courage uh, and and uh, authenticity uh, in ways that uh, that will allow a relationship to develop and, and foster no, but so uh, I
0: mean, yeah. Nick, it just appears to me that standardization fails in the age of me, and the age of me i'm referring to now is in the age of the individual that is now being forced to exist in a virtualized world. So how can standardization live in a virtualized
1: world? It can't and it tries. I mean, it sends out those emails that I uh, talked about uh, earlier in the conversation yeah. and they fail miserably. And that's why so much of marketing now and whatnot is is uh, met with the rolling of the eyes uh, by uh, people who. Have to consume so much of it. So, I think never are we in greater need for that age of personalization that you talk about so eloquently, Glenn.
0: Thank you, Nick. Thank you. So, Nick, let's talk about the future as we wrap up uh, this interview. That again, I, I wish you could just con- continue. It's so insightful. And both of you are just blowing my mind right now and making me think about things I haven't thought of as deeply, um, especially one about the Grateful Dead. That's a classic. <laughs> The, the, so I'm going to share a statement with you, and I'd like for you to react to this, Nick. That, you know, I've often said that we're moving from a knowledge to wisdom-based economy. That it's no longer just about what you know, but what you do with what you know. How do, how do you react to that given today's circumstances and and what lies ahead on the other side of this crisis?
1: Oh, I think uh, it's incredibly apropos right now. Uh, the, the, the question that I'm asking myself right now is, uh, there are a couple of scenarios post-corona uh, crisis. Uh, one of them is that we just have this huge pendulum swing back to the, the way things used to be. Uh, we're so desperate for face-to-face communication and contact we're all going to rush out and go to the nearest restaurant or hug each other in the streets. It'll be like uh, the victory parades after World War II, um, and and you know that would be a beautiful thing, um, and it would be very understandable. But the, it would show that we hadn't learned what we need to learn from this crisis, um, which of course, at the very simple level, is to be prepared for the next one. But. But more deeply than that is to figure out what uh, what are the things that did work well in this time of crisis and these weird circumstances. What are what did we learn about connecting with each other and communicating with each other that we can use in the future? How should things be different? I, I mean, this is a time when I'm sure your your uh, uh, calendar is like mine, Glenda. Uh, a couple of months ago, it just got wiped clean suddenly. All the travel I was going to do was gone, right? And now it's filled up again with virtual stuff. But, but uh, I had this moment where I was looking ahead into a blank calendar. And my first reaction was terror. <laughs> and my second reaction was, huh, this is that moment when I said, if only I had this kind of time, I was going to do X, Y, and Z. And so I started asking myself, what, what are X, Y, and Z? And what is it after this that I want to be different? about the world I live in. Um, And to me, those are really fruitful questions that we need to ask right now um, and uh, prepare for.
0: You know, Nick, um, it's interesting, um, as we think about what will happen on the other side of this crisis, I I certainly hope that we don't find ourselves uh, doing, uh, and I'm referring to corporate America, you could talk about this as humans as well, is we, we we have this tendency to gravitate towards well what did every, what's everybody else doing and then copycat that mm. um, I think that this is another example of where uh, standardization has failed us that efficiency can't handle uh, isn't re- can't handle the resilience that's required uh, to reinvent through an environment of more healthy chaos as I call it mm. how do we avoid those that tendency uh, to declare that, oh, we're going to do this because somebody else is doing that. I mean, I think in many respects, that level of quote unquote commoditization is what limited our ability to act in the moment. We didn't create anything that was distinct enough for ourselves to really push us forward. How do you react to that?
1: I'd love to hear Scott on this too because I bet he has something interesting to say but uh, the, uh, the the danger of standardization as you're saying it and and the and actually uh ironically one of the uh, one of the unintended uh byproducts of the age of of virtual communication is that certain voices get magnified uh, and if somebody says something that sounds clever um and it's a bulleted list of two or three or five items um, and we think, yeah, that's it. If I just do that, I'll be okay. Then that short circuits my own real thinking and my own authentic uh, yes. thinking. Uh, and as a result, I'm going to copy that and I'm going to do that. And and you see these memes being passed around or these lists on Facebook or on LinkedIn being passed around and people saying, yeah, that's it. That's we're done here. We, we can just go forward, do that. And no, you can't. Everybody has to work out their own, uh, path forward always that was always true in human history it's even more true now uh, and it's it will be even more true post coronavirus Uh, and so to your uh, point and and what I love so much about your approach Glenn is that this is a time of personalization in the very deep sense that only our own answers are going to work for us and yes of course we listen to other people and yes of course we get advice and yes of course we live in a world and a community but but uh, if we're just doing the latest uh, uh, meme from somebody else, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for us, uh, and it's not going to work in the long run.
0: He just volleyed it to you, Scott.
2: All right. Man, I, there's so much, man. I think you're just a wealth of wisdom here. I have so many notes in my head to, mm-hmm. to talk about. The one thing that sort of threw me for a second, well, though, uh, most recently in your comments was regarding when you looked at that blank calendar, mm-hmm. and your reaction was terror. Um, and I think that's something that all of us can pretty much relate to. Um, what do you think is, is that a sign that we're not, I mean, you talk about the importance of intent with communication, that we have to focus on our intent being consciously positive people and forces in the universe and go forward with that as our primary intent and add words to that. Right. And use words beyond that. That's the, that's the cake words are the icing. My, my question is that's how we act or that's how I love that coaching in terms of how I move forward in talking with others and communicating with others with that intent being critical foundation. Mm-hmm. What I'm worried about though, is that this, this laps back into standardization. Um, when I see my blank calendar, saw my blank calendar and freaked out. When you saw your blank calendar and freaked out, was that somewhat of a result of us not really doing that positive Intent thinking uh, and communication with ourselves.
0: Oh so,
1: my God, that's so such a yes.
2: For example, like yeah. right now, if I'm thinking in a vacuum, <laughs> if all of a sudden my calendar is clear and I don't have to do anything at all that I don't want to do, I should be jumping up and down and I should have a list that's about 5,000 items deep. <laughs> and that's just list A. And yeah. if I, I should have another list, like that's just what being human should be. That's what I want. Right. And I don't wanna be afraid of an empty calendar anymore. And um, I do know that I can just look at some of my choices in the first week of this shutdown. And I I do see that I I made a few strange choices that I wouldn't have made otherwise that I'm happy about, but I didn't embrace it the way that your comment is encouraging me to embrace the empty calendar. So I wanna say thank you, Nick, (laughs) for giving me the gift of recognizing the beauty of a blank calendar and how that can not only help me and others to look at how we can communicate with positive intent towards others, but there's no way we're gonna be able to do that unless we first do that with ourselves and have that positive intent and communicate with ourselves about what in the hell we're gonna do with a blank calendar.
1: Uh, uh, Glenn, uh, you're absolutely right. Scott just blew my mind. That was that was such a, uh, such a perfect thought uh, to, uh, uh, to end on and to give me something to, to go back to do now with my blank calendar. So uh, thank you, Scott, for that. that. That was, I'm not, I'm not going to say another word that That was a great place to, uh, uh, to close on.
0: Well, Nick, I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, every time we get on the phone, whether it's just checking in with each other or doing something like this, you, you always have something so enriching and valuable to share. And as I said at the beginning, Um, Your timeless uh, treasures are something that um, I've leaned on and I think now others can lean on as well. Um, So on behalf of uh, the team at the, at the personalization uh, outbreak podcast, we thank you so much uh, for your time. And uh, Scott, did you have any parting words before we, uh, before we close?
2: Smiley emoji face.
1: (laughs) Back at you
0: uh upside down smiley face thumbs up
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we better stop there <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks again for your time uh nick it will be in touch Thank you, great thanks
1: thanks right.
0: thanks for listening to personalization outbreak make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show if you enjoyed the content visit AgeOfPersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day and remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.